Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Gulf Coast Poker Podcast for February 2023. We are glad that you guys can make it to listen to us. We got a quick roundtable with Wild Bill Phillips, the co-owner of Gulf Coast Poker, and Ben Saxon. Uh, before we launch into the roundtable, we're going to let Bill plug the next event in Pearl Bill, go ahead and take it away. What's up, everybody? We're pretty excited. Wednesday, March 8th, we have the GCP Tour Championship. The list of everybody that's eligible to play, or I should say that's invited to play, is off the front page of GulfCoastPoker.net. It'll be the top banner ad. We're adding a $10,400 WPT main event championship seat to that to first. And we got a lot of other things kind of planned to add to it as well. Immediately after that is the Million Philly series as normal. And that will be more, I think it's over 1.2 million in guarantees. Start with a 350K guarantee in our uh, bag bonus tournament. Then we got a 350K guarantee in our main event. Right after that, but you got a couple of weeks to catch your breath. Then we're going to be back in Shreveport, April 11th through the 19th, partnering up with Valley, Shreveport, and uh, Southern Poker again. And then we got some other stuff we're working on. Hopefully, maybe even something this summer. Uh, definitely going to do something right after the summer. So we got big plans, a lot of GCP events in your future. And that's it for me for now. Good deal. Well, uh, what what has been going on in the poker world lately, guys? Uh, I know we just uh, finished the, the Million Dollar Heater, a uh, big, huge event um, at the Beau Rivage, uh, the first one since COVID, and, man, they packed it in for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I would love to hear uh, y'all's perspective on that because I, um, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, I was out of town visiting family, um, which is great, but I wasn't able to be be there for the heater. Um, so yeah, uh, seems like the numbers were were really good. Um, how did you guys like it? So I loved it. It felt like. I mean, big reunion of sorts. A lot of people we haven't seen who, you know, maybe only just play the heater or maybe that's the only time they kind of come into the region. They had huge numbers. I think they even said it was as big as the last two put together, maybe in terms of total entrance for the whole series. And the midweek stuff was big. A lot of people on that opener. I mean, it was crazy. They did huge numbers. It was Electric. It was great to be back at the Beau Rivage. Everybody remembered what it was like, and uh, uh, it was good times. And I, I, I kind of believe there might be another poker boom going on right now because I'm just seeing big numbers everywhere, and that that the million dollar heater was gigantic. What do you think, Gene? Yeah, it, it was. 
it was dynamic, man. There were so many people there. And then, you know, you, you get all the good stuff from the Beau Rivage. Uh, but one of the big things that they got going there are the single table satellites. You know, the, the, those things, they keep them going as long as there's people there to play them. And they, there's people who come to the Beau Rivage just to grind the, the sit and goes. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had a, uh, the, it, just a, a great turnout overall. The main event uh, was huge. A um, little bit of drama there at the end. Uh, I think we're a little bit indifferent about uh, what wound up happening with the final table. Um, we uh, we just handled it uh, professionally. We felt we felt the bow handled it, handled it professionally. And we'll just kind of leave it at that. What do you think, Bill? Well, you mentioned the single-table satellites, uh, Ben. I don't know if you're aware of this, or uh, I think the WSOP is not going to have single-table satellites this year. Is that accurate, or are they just getting rid of the lammers? Because I had somebody tell me he's not going to the WSOP because they don't have the single-table satellites. I initially thought they are just getting rid of the lammers. Do either one of you all know about this, Ben? No, I, I hadn't heard anything one way or the other. I know that the the WSOP summer schedule was just released, but I I wasn't aware that they they were getting rid of the saddies. Assuming that's true, I mean, why do you think that would be the case? Because I mean, that that's obviously been a popular way to kind of uh, get in cheap to some of the bigger events and and even grind and even grind them um, by themselves. Yeah, it's it's stunning to me because and like. Uh, Gene was saying that's a big draw of the heater is that it's one of the last stops that still has the single tables. Hopefully the person that told me was misinformed and just got it confused and they're not getting rid of them. They're just getting rid of the lammers and making everything easier in terms of the payouts instead of people having to sell lammers and do all that nonsense. Hopefully that's all it is. And I don't want to give out false information, so I don't know a hundred percent. I was hoping one of y'all knew one way or the other, but if not, um, Let's just uh, all make a a pact that they'll find out the true answer. Maybe we'll have it on our next podcast and let everybody know. Yeah, it's going to be a big disappointment if they don't have those. Like Ben said, so many uh, up-and-coming players go there and try to use those to ladder into the – bigger tournaments uh they're gonna they're gonna take a lot of grief if they don't have those but you know on the the flip side you know they they run them so smooth at the Beau Rivage. they don't run them smooth at the world series of poker you guys know you got to go you, you got to flip a coin on what table you got to go stand in line to get the the buy-in sheets, and then so you buy you know, hypothetically a 175, and then you got to go wait and cross your fingers that a 175 will jump off. And so you got a 175 ticket, and they keep jumping off 125. You're just sitting there waiting. They, they, it, you know, it, it, it was a mess last year. I, I will admit, I wasn't, uh, it wasn't a pleasant experience getting in the sit and goes but then again the bow has all that heather and them just had it like a well-oiled machine well yeah i think you're right but i will say this i think just the system at the series for some reason is not very good i think the people there like you know we know reed reed works there 
Reed does an excellent job. So I think the people there do it good. Just for whatever reason, they got to figure out a better system and iron that out. And I do agree with you. Like you're, you could totally get in the wrong line and be there for 45 minutes and just watch other uh, events kick off. And then it's a little bit like trying to navigate a toll line where you're like, well, okay, well I'll jump in the 175 because those are going. And the next thing you know, the other line goes off. But um. Yeah, it's are they having it in, they in the same are, are they having the World Series in the same uh the same pod right there where Chase was working? Yes, and Chase is back there. So, um he was very briefly at Lake Charles, but he's back um at the World Series. I believe that's common knowledge out there, but yes, yeah, so Paris and it will now be the Horseshoe Valley's uh think they might have even changed the name out front, but it will be the Horseshoe and Paris that will be having the WSOP again. So it will be just like last year. So it's officially the Horseshoe, but you don't know if the signs are up yet. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty close. It, it, it will be by the WSOP for sure. I know that. And I'm pretty sure they have a circuit event right before the WSOP, and that's listed as the Horseshoe. So. Then your buddy uh, Jared Ingles, he's had himself uh, quite a month. Are you aware of, of what he's been able to do? Uh, a little bit. I know we were planning to talk about uh, Jared last in the last podcast. Um, I suppose it's good we didn't because he just keeps uh, keeps up with these big scores. I, I think you probably know better than I than I do. I saw that he had some some big scores, but I, I can't remember which one. So, are you? Uh, up to, to speed on what's going on with him? I believe he's chopped twice for MSPT within two and a half or three weeks for over 100K each. So that's pretty good. So main event, MSPT main events, he went, you know, essentially back-to-back in the chop for over 100K um, in a very short order from what I understand. So the nice. guy's a beast. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and of course. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, he's just built. He's just built for for uh, for the game. I mean, he's he's just been he's such a versatile player, and he's been um, grinding for for a long time. So he's got the experience. He's got a lot of heart, um, and you know that doesn't necessarily translate into big scores, um, but. It, you know, for him, it's great. I feel like his kind of uh, homecoming was when he shipped the the circuit event in Cherokee a year or so ago. And since then, I mean, it's just been more of the same. So, yeah, what I'm seeing on Hendon is the he got second in uh, or chopped the, the main in San Antonio, South Texas Poker Championship, and then, um, then one of the MSPTs in – Colorado, it looks like both for six figure scores. So, um, yeah, yeah, Blackhawk, yeah. So, hopefully, he can keep riding riding the wave. Is that, was yeah, that uh, Texas? Was that Texas event or MSPT? It says it's uh, the South Texas Poker Championship, okay, according to Hendon. Yeah, I don't think it was MSPT. I, I think um, I, I got that information from somebody that said, hey, you're aware of what Jared's been up to. And 
it read like he had done two MSPTs, but I'm sure it was um, just San Antonio than MSPT. Um, you know, it was interesting. We tried to get him on the podcast, but Jared's a pretty uh, chill, uh, quiet dude, doesn't really want the spotlight on him. So he, he turned us down. Uh, it would have been interesting to, to interview him, especially with his uh, recent form, because he did grind for a while. Now it seems to be paying dividends in, in the, a big way. And so I got a topic for you guys. Well, okay. let's, yeah, let's talk about Preston. Preston is, is killing yeah. um, Front runner for GCP Player of the Year, you think? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, just it keeps making it happen. Uh, keeps going deep. Uh, you know how hard it is to go deep in these things, and he's making it look easy. I tell you, uh, it, it, it's just snap the main and tunica, right? I'm pretty sure they might have chopped. I don't remember, but I know they went down the heads up or two or three people, maybe. I believe they didn't well. chop. I believe they didn't chop because he had like almost all the chips three-handed, and. Of course, there's three very good players late. It was Preston, Mike Monahan, and is it was it Carl, right? Carl Masters? Yeah, it was Carl Masters. It was. Yeah. And then um, Preston, no, he's playing great. We, we've covered a lot of his final tables, and we've seen him make some great plays, great calls. Um, surely he's bluffing a lot of the pots that he gets to without showdown, you know. So, but I wanted to ask you guys if you looked at the uh, Global Poker Awards at all. Either one of y'all happen to see the nominees for those? I didn't. No. I, I did. I, I went through. Uh, you know, I went through the the nominations this past week after we had kind of texted back and forth about about it. Um, and I have to say, I haven't paid much attention in the past. Um, but yeah, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts, Bill? Cause I mean, you, you kind of had, had your eye on a couple, um, you know, what were your, in your opinion, omissions or, or blind spots for the, the, G, the GPI. So what I did was I looked at it and then I started thinking about it and was trying to remember the last time somebody from our region was nominated for almost any of these awards. And off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure Jonathan Little was nominated for content fairly recently. Although Jonathan originally from Pensacola, he's been situated in New York City for a while now. So he's kind of from our region, but you know, not really in some respects. John Hawley, I believe, won an award for the most caches in a year. But that's not really an award that you're nominated for. It's kind of like the GPI player index, you know. You either win it or you don't, you know, you're either first or not. And I think he was there. So I kind of got my dander off a little bit and I wanted to speak up and speak on behalf of our region. So I, I whipped up a letter and I, I sent it to him and I said, basically, I felt like the Southeast had been kind of ignored or omitted. And, you know, we do our own awards. And, and one of our biggest problems is getting people to nominate. Uh, candidates and having a diversity of candidates. And we don't want to have just the same people from the same region. We want as many people from around the Gulf Coast with a lot of different opinions to nominate people. And I suspected that was the problem with them. 
And when I wrote the letter, I said, well, I better do my research if I'm going to send in a complaint letter. And I wanted to see if maybe there's another region that had a bigger gripe than us. And yeah, it appeared to me at least that there were other regions with bigger gripes because it's a worldwide game. It's a global poker awards. I didn't see anybody from Asia, Africa, Latin America, and especially Asia and Latin America or South America. The game is growing massive. There's big tours. There's big events. There's a lot of people that should maybe be included, at least as a nominee, or getting some sort of recognition. And another thing, I'm not trying to have a monologue here. I apologize for that. But another thing that bothered me, too, is some of the categories, it's just the same four people year after year after year. And while they're all deserving and, you know, there's not anybody that I saw on the list that I was like, oh, man, that guy shouldn't be nominated. Just the opposite. They're all very worthy. Hello? Maybe they should tweak the awards or something like that. So long story longer, I sent the letter, and I, I mentioned the Southeast, but then I also mentioned how the rest of the world was kind of underserved. And I can't uh, give the give them any more credit than I immediately got an email back. They immediately addressed that and said that they do have voters, and they do think that there's regions of the world that get slighted, but they have voters from those regions. They just seem to vote for Americans and Europeans to a lesser extent. And it's, they're the people, it's the worldwide people that are nominating Americans and Europeans. It's not just Americans, and, it's, and they're trying hard. And um, it was pretty cool for them to respond so quickly and address that. And, you know, I, I get it, I understand it. So maybe maybe my criticism was a little overwrought uh, now that I know the particulars. But um, wow. I certainly was advocating for the region and then for the rest of the world. And good news is, um, Somebody in the region that we know will be voting in the future. So there'll certainly be some uh, people that do well in our region that will get advocated for. Good deal, man. Way to so. go, Phil. Well, we're uh, we're right at about 20 minutes. Um, we're going to go ahead and uh, launch into um, this month's podcast. Uh, uh, we have a good player, good friend of a lot of folks that has passed away and we'll let Ben as interviewed the guy, but we'll let Ben give a little intro and then we'll listen to Ben's uh interview with him. Mr. Pat. Ben. Yeah, so I wanted to to uh kind of uh intro this interview. It's a little bit different from what, what we've been doing on here just because um this interview with Pat happened uh, almost four years ago um, in 2019, and I'll say a little bit about that in a second. But just quickly, for those who don't know, Pat McNamara, um, he was just a really prominent uh, state and film actor. Uh, he he's, he's, uh, grew up in NOLA. He founded uh, Energy Theater. He was very involved um, in both stage and film, and, and, and I feel like if you've seen it, if you've seen, uh, you know, even a handful of Steven Spielberg movies or that he's been in a ton of mainstream stuff from Close Encounters of the Third Kind to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure to Star Trek. He had a, a really long and, and storied career and he passed away uh, this January, on January 2nd. He was 80 years old. So, um yeah, the the interview with Pat is um, 
you know, it comes from from some of my work in previous years. Uh, some folks might know that I, I uh, wrote a monthly interview column called Poker Faces in the Crowd, um, where, you know, I just talk to talk to people about their entrees into poker. So there's a lot of similarities between what I did back then and and, and what we're trying to do on the podcast now. And so this interview happened uh, in February of 2019. And I just want to mention uh, that, you know, the sound quality is not as good as, as we might hope because, you know, I didn't really um, anticipate this ever being, being released. But once Pat passed, I went back to my, you know, my old audio files and found it and, and thought to myself, hey, this is a, a chance to, um, you know, to kind of honor Pat and his legacy. And I think for, for, for any of us who knew him, you know, he was, he was always a very generous, kind uh, guy in the card room with a very, very wry sense of humor. He's very quiet. He played the part of, he played the role of the grumpy old man very well. But if you got to know Pat, he was always uh, quick to laugh, quick to smile. And so it really was an honor to to have interviewed him. Um, so I will uh, post um, the the written interview in the show notes. And this this interview runs about 45 minutes, and a lot of it gets into his background in stage and film, why he was attracted to it, how he got into it, and then uh, towards the last 10-15 minutes, we talk a little bit about how. Pat got into poker and what attracts him to poker. So it's really kind of a blend of uh, his life outside of poker and 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 inside it. So um, so that's what I would what I would say before we before we turn over to the the interview. Um, Bill Jean, do you have anything that you want to add? I mean, you summed up Pat uh, immaculately. Uh, his wry sense of humor, uh, quick to have a quiet laugh with you on the side or share a joke. Um, highly competitive when it came to poker, but, you know, it's still able to be friends with all the people that he was competing with. You know, it was great to get to know Pat and to know Pat to love him. Uh, He also did, so he lended his hand helping us make some of those silly videos. Then he got a starring role in, in one of them, the Bagwell video where, you know, kind of silly and stupid, but he took it incredibly serious. He gave us quite an education in, in kind of film and putting stuff together. And even though the project itself was just meant to be silly, I think we both, I mean, we all learned a lot from Pat and just how professional he was about it. And he gave us a lot of knowledge and, and didn't uh, treat it lightly or, or stupid. You know, he took it very seriously, and, and we all gained from that. And I think that's important, something we can all carry with us in our other aspects of life, that, you know, even if something is, um, you know, maybe not a serious pursuit, treating it seriously has its own benefits. I uh, appreciate Pat for that and many other lessons that uh, he bestowed to us. Yeah, I didn't uh I didn't know Pat as well as you guys. I just knew him as a great guy and I know he's gonna be missed. For sure. All right. So 
Yeah, so without further ado, um, we hope you uh, enjoy this interview with, with Pat McNamara. Uh, just to kind of set the scene, it's uh, about 10 a.m. on a Wednesday morning, and we are sitting outside my old office, the Starbucks at Harris, New Orleans. Hope you enjoy. I'd love to get into the poker stuff, but first I'd love to hear just about your, your experience in acting, like how you actually got into it, and um, you know, if we could just kind of walk the experience. All right. Um, started off, I was, I went from one major to another in undergraduate school, yeah. and never really felt settled in anything, but I knew I was going to law school. Okay. So I kept juggling around, but I was going to be a lawyer. That was, yeah. And along the way, I figured I'm going to do a play just for public speaking purposes because I want to be a lawyer. And I always thought it was something I could do. I did a play. I was really good at it. I always thought I'd be good at it. I did it. I was good at it. That was that. Went to law school. Hated law school. <laughs> just hated law school. Was this down in NOLA or, or was it? Where this was at Tulane. It was in Tulane. Tulane yeah. Law um, was not for me. Just yeah. Obviously, was not for me. Wrong place for me. And then I didn't know what I was going to do. And I had never really seen any professional theater. Uh, so when I left law school, I went to New York and got a job for Flying Tiger Airlines and started going to the theater. Uh, I was working the night shift and I could go to the theater and I kind of made a deal. Everybody else on the night shift used to like to sleep a lot and I would stay awake and the supervisor appreciated that so he'd let me come there a little bit later okay. if I had to. So I could go see a show and if I got there late I could. And I saw shows two, three times a week, and I saw a bunch of theater on Broadway, off Broadway, and there's a thing you could do in those days very easily, the thing that a lot of actors do, but you can't really afford to see all the things you want to see, there's something you can do called second acting. Second acting? Yeah. Okay. And second act is you go there, and at that time, everybody smoked. And at the intermission, people go outside and take a quick break and smoke. And you just go and mix with the crowd at the intermission. And when they go back in, you go back in. And you look for an empty seat. And you see it from the second act on. Okay. And so I saw some of them all the way from the beginning, but I second acted a lot of shows. Okay. So, and I would see things and I'd say, I could do that. Yeah, I could do that. And then every now and then, yeah, I'd say, I could do that. I had a little training. I could do that. You know, some of them said that. And then I saw Burton do Hamlet. And I said, oh, I don't know if I can do that. Who, who, Bert, who Bert? Burton do Hamlet. Is it uh, Richard Burton? Yeah. Okay, yeah. And I saw um, Jason Robards. Do after the fall of Lincoln Center, I said, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> yeah. So there were a couple of things that just, that's really, that's a, a level to aspire to. Yeah, but, so did that, did that motivate you to, to try yeah, to get, get yeah. better and learn? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
so then when I came back, I thought just at that moment at UNO that we're going from having a speech department which did a couple of plays each year to having a real drama major with a new head of the department and it was a big new deal. Mm -hmm. And so I was at the right moment in time and I got in then and became a theater major and I immediately got the lead in all the shows. Okay. What was the initial attraction to, to theater in particular? Um, did you grow up reading Shakespeare or, or uh, did I? Did you grow up reading Shakespeare? Or, no, or, no. no. I'm, I didn't come from a household that had much of a cultural background at all. We didn't have any music more advanced than that's Domino. Um, no art. Nothing. Mm -hmm. We weren't poor, but we didn't. There was no art yeah. in our house. Um, but as soon as I got into it, I, I really took to Shakespeare. Okay. Yeah. And indeed, I followed that throughout my career. I loved Shakespeare. I did a lot of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as I got into that program at UNO, I did uh, Oedipus Rex, and then the next year I did Macbeth. Uh, later on I did, uh, I went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and did five Shakespeare plays there, and I did two-line Shakespeare much later when I came back mm -hmm. here. I did lots of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I taught Shakespeare later. Anyway, so I did that. I went back to New York. Uh, first of all, I, when I left UNO, I went to, you know, I thought I was ready to try a bigger pond. I wasn't sure I was ready for New York. And I had two sort of mentors of mine who were teaching at Wayne State University in Detroit. So I thought I'm going to go to Detroit and take some graduate courses there. Now I didn't enroll, but I just went and sat in on classes and yeah, yeah, took classes. And I did a couple of shows at Wayne State, and I said, "Yeah, I'm ready." Um, and it happened. Somebody saw me in one of the shows there, and they were doing. Uh, an Actors Equity production of the unsinkable Molly Brown. And they called me and asked me to be in it. Didn't audition or anything. They said, would you play this role? And I, I had done one musical in college. And really, no one's ever accused me of being a singer. <laughs> so I said, sure. And so I got my equity card. And that's a big deal when you're a stage actor. What is an equity card? That's you're in the union. With the uh, Actors okay. Equity Union. And it takes some actor years to get into the union. Until you're into the union, you're really screwed because you can't audition for anything professionally. You can't audition unless you're in the union. And if you can't, if you're not in, not in the union, you can't make any money. And I mean, even when you're, it's one of those circular things, you know. So there, I, all of a sudden, I had a union card. 
So I said, I'm ready to go to New York now, for sure. So I went to New York and I started doing a few auditions and I got a job teaching. I studied with one of the great voice teaching masters there, Arthur Lessac, legendary voice Arthur teacher. Lessac? Lessac. L-E-S-S-A-C. And he was teaching me and teaching me to teach his system of voice. And after I did that for a few months, he got me a job teaching voice at the National Academy of Drama at okay. Carnegie Hall. So I'm teaching, paying my bills just by doing that, and had plenty of time to audition. And was really, you know, looking to do the regular, regular theater. But I became exposed to the off-off Broadway at that time, which was 1967. To this, the new theater that was happening then, and everything was exploding at that time in the off-off Broadway. Okay. All these new playwrights were doing radically different things. New theater companies were doing things that had never been seen before. And I, I went to see a couple of them, and I was, it just blew my mind. Okay. What, what was it? Was it the the, the um like experimental uh, structures yeah. or was, were the subjects just different everything. or everything was different? Everything about yeah. it, yeah. Um, I had never imagined that theater could be so visceral, so meaningful, so immediate. I mean, hit you in the gut. Um, and I immediately wanted to do that. It was totally different than anything I had studied before. And so for three years I was with a company there called La Mama Plexus. And it was a really difficult physical form of theater. Okay. We were known around La Mama, which was a leading experimental theater company, it was La Mama ETC. Experimental Theater Company as the uh, Green Bay Packers of Mama. <laughs> what would you have to have to do? That was well, it, so was, it was a uh, we did workshops three hours a day, four times a week, and it was we do tumbling and things like that. And tumbling's great if you're seven years old when you learn it. When you try to pick it up when you're 26, 27, you bust your ass every day. Wow. And so, but there was a kind of physicality to the way that we approached every script that we picked up that required great potential for movement. Even if you weren't doing it with that kind of stuff, you didn't have to be tumbling in the thing, but you had to, when you saw people on the stage, even if they were totally relaxed, you had the feeling that at any moment they might just like that, be on the next other side of the stage. Mm -hmm. And you can just sense it mm -hmm. with, with this style of acting. And indeed, sometimes they were. Um, it's hard to explain, really hard to explain. There was a, a method of acting that had become fashionable at that mm -hmm. time. It came from Poland, the Kutowski technique. Okay. And we were the best American practitioners, the foremost American practitioners of the Tosky technique. 
worked our asses off. Um, so I did that. And then... I, I got a, a, a gig teaching at Antioch College teaching that sort of methodology. Okay. Is that in New York also? Or where, where? No, Antioch was in, in uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio. Oh, okay. It was an area of avant-garde university. Okay. You know, it was famous for being super liberal for years and years and years. It was an old university mm -hmm. of college. Famous for being very liberal. And I was a guest artist in residence there for one quarter, taught there, and the result of that gig, there was a, a new American university starting at the University of the New World, the Université des Nouveaux-Monts in Haute-Mendoz, Switzerland, and I got a gig teaching there as the head of the theater department there. And I had an interesting arrangement. They asked me, first of all, to be a consultant to tell them what a theater department should be. So I said, well, ideally, after studying their situation, which did not have much money, I said, a theater department should have a faculty consisting of a, a group of people who had their own identity as an acting troupe, each of whom had different teaching skills and different and they would be the faculty, they would cover all disciplines, but they would be able to perform on their own and go to festivals and perform their own and gain some, you know, do some PR for the university. And they said, boy, what a great idea, but we couldn't possibly afford to have five people or six people in the theater department. So I thought about that for a while and I knew that they were going to supply housing for the faculty. And I came back to them and I said, you give me my choice of chalet, it's going to be at about 9,500 feet this school. I said, you give me my choice of chalet and I will split my salary with five other people and I will get five other people who will go up for that. They were also giving a food allowance mm -hmm. to everybody. And they said, wow, that sounds great. And I got five other people and we went and we lived up in the mountains. Wow. 9,500 people. We had this huge chalet with a sauna in it. And it was amazing. <laughs> it was just, sounds amazing. And we made the theater from scratch mm -hmm. out of an old army barracks building. And you were still, uh, were you still um, trying to practice the experimental style? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, we were teaching the Tosky. Yeah. yeah. And uh, two of the people with me knew how to do it, and the other three I was teaching them as we did it. They were both uh, voice experts, singing experts. And one of them knew yoga and mime and other stuff. So we had a magnificent time. University before very long went bankrupt. It was founded on a dream. Uh, glorious concept. This was during all the turmoil in the universities in the United States, and it 
was designed to attract disaffected Americans. I see. Students. Was this during Vietnam or? or yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So anyway, it was a glorious time, and I went from there to Amsterdam, and I was there for a few months, and then um, went back to New York, and I knew I wanted to have my own theater. So I came back to New Orleans, and I bought a long-term lease on the Britannia Theater. And I added a stage and dressing rooms, and I started a professional theater company, an equity theater company at the Britannia. And ran that from about 74 to 77. And um, did something that I don't know that anybody has ever done before. We would run the movies while we were in rehearsal, and then we'd take down the screen and put up the set and run the play for a few weeks, and then we'd strike the set and put the screen back up and run movies. We were going back and forth. Did that. Lost a lot of money. <laughs> Lost a whole lot of money. And I would imagine it's probably hard to, it's a hard business to be profitable in or hard Well, to it is, and you know, the, the, it was a, designed as a non-profit, but there were, had been right before that the New Orleans Repertory Theater, which the, the city had dumped hundreds of thousands of dollars into, and everybody that was going to donate to a professional theater had dumped their money into that, and they all said, oh, well, it can't work here. Well, they had dumped it into a 2,500-seat house that was just a, a money kit. Mm -hmm. And this was the right size house, 340 seats. But in any event, they had all convinced themselves you couldn't do it here. So, whatever. But during that time, I had no interest in movies, in movie acting. None. I was a stage actor. Gotcha. Loved it. That was it. But... There were a few films that came to New Orleans to be shot at that time. Nothing like the business there is now. Mm -hmm. But when they would come, they would try to cast supporting roles locally so that they sure. didn't have to pay housing. Right, right. And this woman, Wilma Francis, was aware of my work here. And she would call me and she did casting, local casting. And she would get me to audition for these things. And so I started finding myself doing some film work. And I didn't mind film work at all. And it paid really well. I joined the, the Screen Actors Guild. Is that that's the similar? Is that the uh, the it's equivalent the, like the the, film union. the the union? Yeah. So all of a sudden, I had a, a film resume, and then when I well. The last 
film that I was casting here, I had I had a baby coming on the way due, and I was realized I couldn't throw this party anymore supporting the theater here. And I needed to, to go somewhere. And the last thing that I did was casting here. I was casting Close Encounters for the third time. And I had a very, I was in that for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. We were shooting in Mobile, Alabama. And I knew that that was going to be a big deal. And so I thought, maybe I'll go to Hollywood. Well, what, what, I'd be interested to hear what that experience was like. I mean, Spielberg was the man oh, over there. Was, what was that like working with him and with the cast and the crew? It was, uh, I had worked with Brian De Palma before, who was a great director, and that was, that was a great experience, but it was life-changing to go to, to work on Close Encounters for a few reasons. One, I was there for such a long time, I had never worked for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks on a picture. And everyone on that picture, everyone down to the, you know, second assistant grip, knew that this picture just might be a great picture. So everybody was really trying to get it right. Nobody was going to try to, you know, say, ah, try to get by. Yeah, everybody, everybody was just like working hard. Right. Yeah. And that was a great feeling on a film set. That doesn't happen that often. And uh, Spielberg himself was, was under tremendous pressure because Columbia Pictures was going to be bankrupt if that picture failed. Oh my God. Their stock was down to about $6 a share. And the movie was way over schedule and way over budget. And if that movie didn't make money, they were dead. And so the studio executives were coming in there like on a shuttle leaning on the producer, Julia Phillips, and leaning on him because they were overstepped. So, you know, she's trying to shield him from the pressure, but he's under pressure all the time, hurry it up. And if you can't hurry it up, yeah. and get what he's trying to get on screen. Right. Leaning on the cinematographer because he had some things to do. Troubled hard to hard to life. Mm -hmm. um, but he got it done. I mean, he, he got it done. I remember one sequence there. There's a thing there. There. This is when the, the mothership comes by and flashing the music. And one of those pods that the scientists are up there in a pod and they're watching. And Stephen said. I need the glass to, to burst from the sound thing. I need the glass to blow out there. And the studio said, absolutely not. That's not in the script. That's going to cost $1,500. That's not in the fucking budget. No. They said, this is 
they're that late, they're not gonna let him have another 1500 for that effect. Not another fucking penny, it's not in the budget. He said, I have to have, at that moment, I need that. I need that at that moment in the day. They said, no. He tells cops, break the fucking thing, I'll pay for it. You watch that moment. Yeah, I mean that's 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 dedication right there. I mean that's like that's an incredible story. So that experience, I mean it it kind of redirected you in the sense of hey, like maybe Hollywood is the next stop. Oh yeah, yeah. And I knew that was going to be a big thing on the resume that would get me in a lot of doors. And this, uh, that Wilma Francis, that casting person here, she had been in Hollywood for many years. And she had good connections there. And so she was able to connect me with an agent. A lot, again, a lot of people, first of all, they go out to Hollywood and they don't, they don't have their union card yet. Where you from? You can't get an agent, you can't get an audition if you don't have your union card. I had my union card, I had a resume, and I had an agent as soon as I went out there. A decent agent, good agent. All because of Wilma Francis, who her special people, you know, called her Aunt Willie. She was Aunt Willie to me, she really mentored me. And, uh, she soon moved back out to Hollywood. But, um, so I hit the ground running when I was out there. Mm -hmm. But I already had a, a, you know, a few pictures, but one with De Palma and one with, a big one with Spielberg that everybody was buzzing about. It wasn't out yet mm -hmm. for another six or eight months. Mm -hmm. And everybody was curious about that. So I got in a lot of doors and very shortly, before Close Encounters opened, De Palma had another picture coming out, uh, The Fury, and he asked me to be in that. So, I started on rolling, and that one I was in it from the time they started shooting to the time they ended. That was the only one I've been in from Oops, like, wire ADC. Wire. Mm -hmm. And th that was kind of an interesting story, too. I got a call from the agent saying, Brian wants you to be in this movie. Great, you know, I look at it all the way through. Terrific. And Brian's one of the few people who insists on having rehearsal before the movie. He insists on rehearsal. Most people don't. Studios don't like to pay for rehearsal. You can have two weeks of rehearsal. Great. And I said, what are they what are they paying? They said, it's scale, which is all I got in New Orleans. But scale is good. What does scale mean? Is it well, like union scale. Oh, all right, all right. Scale is not it's bad. It's good, okay. But I said, well, scale. Now, this is my first picture deal since I got out there. I said, scale, you know, agent, you know, making scale in New Orleans. They came out here to make more than scale. So, I want to make scale, I want to, you know, 
time to go up or not? Said, uh, let's go for more than scale. Said, okay, how much are you looking for? And I think scale at the time was like 1800 a week or something. I said, well, let's go for 2500 Said, if it starts at that, you get so much overtime, it's always a lot more than that. Okay, you realize that if I do that, that's a counter offer. Uh, you can lose the deal. Right, it's a risk. Yeah, but you know, you're talking to the casting director. And if he goes back to Brian, Brian's going to say, you know, I want him given the thing. Because I'm, you know, I know Brian a little bit by now. He says, okay. So. They do that, and I'm waiting to get 2500 A couple of days later, I get a phone call from Brian. He never called me before. He says, Patrick, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He says, you're going to fuck this deal up. I want you in the picture. The producer has someone else in mind. That's the deal. Oh my God! Okay, I said I'll I'll talk to the agent. <laughs> so I called the agent back. I said, Look, uh, Brian called and said that that's it. So I said, Let's take the deal. And the agent said, Well, I believe that uh, he's a very old-time agent. I believe that as a personal favor to Brian that we could uh, take the regular scale. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's do let's, Brian let's a do personal <laughs> favor and do that. So we take the deal. Now this whole thing except for the two weeks of rehearsal is on location. When you're on location you get per diem. Mm -hmm. They're paying for your whole hotel, you're gonna get breakfast and lunch on the set free. So per diem is really basically dinner. And that's a, again a union rate thing. I always thought it's always pretty standard. At the time it was like $35 a day. That's what it always been anything I had done before. So the first time I go to get my per diem envelope they give you at the end of the week, I'm expecting $35 a day. I get my envelope, and it's more than a thousand dollars. And I found out my agent had negotiated my per diem of $150 a day. I didn't even know that was negotiable. I didn't know you I found out the only person, the only two people getting more than I was for per diem was Kirk Douglas and John Cassavetes <laughs> were getting $200 a day. Wow. I, and that more than made up for the amount I was trying to get in right, my weekly. Right, right, right. And this is non-taxable. Uh-huh. 
The Brigham is not tactical, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. Like, what an interesting word. I mean, you just have to kind of figure it out as you go. There's no way yeah. to really yeah. sort through it. And every time we worked in 10, 12 hours every day, I was making money hand over fist on that thing. And that was when the first time, well, no, on, on Close Encounters, it was, it was a while before I was kind of accepted enough for there to be some, some nose candy going around. But on, on the Fury, there was a lot of nose candy going around. Dreyfus was really Spielberg hated drugs. Hated drugs. Uh, Julia Phillips, the producer, she went, you know, she crashed and burned with uh, free base after that. But she was but there was a lot of, of uh, nose candy on the viewer. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, there's no way we'll be able to talk about all your all your films. I looked at your your, your filmography, and, and uh, there's so much like you've yeah. been like the A Team to Star Trek to like uh, yeah. so like do, do any films jump out as like your favorite as, as something that you were a part of? Um, well, uh, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure was part. Yeah, was it fun? Like, just because of the? I mean, it's such a fun movie. Was yeah. that what made it fun? Was like everybody enjoyed yeah. making it? Yeah. So I gotta ask. Uh, I saw that there is a third. There's like the third, the third movie coming out. Like they haven't. They haven't whispered are you, to me, but I assume that by now they are the parents. But I mean, are you open to doing it if they're interested in having you? I have officially retired. I've taken inactive status in both of the acting unions. Okay. Could you come out of, is there any way to come out of retirement and give well, give the people what they want? They'd have to wave the checkbook at me, okay. I guess, but that's, that's not going to happen. I, saw, I just saw, it was like a year ago they announced it. Looks like it's in pre-production or whatever, but they got Keanu and the other guy. Yeah. Yeah. So you, uh... When did you officially retire? Uh, I retired from the, the stage union about four years ago and from the screen about two years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and do you, like, do you miss it or? Uh... No. No. Okay. No, I thought I would, but I don't at all. I, I, I love acting on screen. Acting on stage pays not anything. It's really hard work. Um, acting on screen, I, I love doing, but I hate the process of auditioning. Hate it. And it used to be okay. Because they, when I was in Hollywood, they'd call in about, you know, when I was doing guest star spots on television, they'd call in about five people be in front of the director, you'd read, if he wanted an adjustment, it'd say, try this, you do that, you go up. You know, I'd get about two out of five, sometimes three out of five. Now, you never meet with the director. 
put it on videotape. Send it in. I don't uh, know if they're seeing 50 people on videotape. Right. And it's cold. I mean, right. do it on videotape. That's bullshit. Yeah. That's just bullshit. You get an adjustment, it's from the casting director. They don't know shit happens. They think they do. The director sort of told them what they want. But so often in an audition, you give them something totally different from what they think they want, and the director says, wow, yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't, you don't miss it. That can't happen now, because you give the casting director something that's different than they think they want, they don't send that tape in. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, when you retired, was that around when like poker started coming under your radar, or like when no, did you no, become you've been playing poker for for a long time? Or? I started playing poker when I was in high school, of course, playing with my buddies. I started playing in, in uh, back room, you know, the barroom games when I was in college, and I played. A lot of seven card stud. I mean, 20 hours a week in Jefferson Parish here. A lot. The seven card stud limit was all we played then. Mm -hmm. But I played it and played it pretty damn well mm -hmm. in the early 60s, mid 60s. Okay. And then I pretty much quit. You know, certainly by the time I went to Detroit, New York, I never played anything. Okay. When I went out to L.A., I didn't poker. Uh, at that time, the only place to play was Gardena, and at that time in Gardena, the only games were uh, Jacks are Better and five-card low-ball stuff. And I hate low-ball, and Jacks are Better. You know, if you played five hands in an hour, you're playing too loose. Because that means you, you, you can't open the pot unless it's jacks or better, is yeah. that right? Yeah. 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 I, mean, it was, I went there a couple of times, it was fucking dreadful. <laughs> in Gardena? Yeah. In Jacksonville, yeah. It, it, just the whole ambiance of the place was, some, was awful. Somebody, it might have been Gates and Lee, some great writer, that conned some his publisher into giving him an advance to write a book about he was a big time gambler besides being a great novelist. John Cleese? No, Talese. Oh, Gate Gate Talese. Yeah, 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 yeah. He got an I think it was him. Got an, a, an advance from a, his publisher to write about poker. I think he was poker, not just not all gambling, but all around the world. And he played in London, and he played in Macau, and he played in Las Vegas, and he played all over the place. And I think it's one of the last chapters in the book, but he had a line which I never forgot. He said, nobody ever goes to Gardena. They end up there. And yeah. that really is it. That's just, you know, that's just, that's, at that time, was the bottom of the barrel. You just right. ended up. Right. Um, but, you know, the whole scene there has changed in California poker now. Oh, poker, absolutely. Yeah, it's one of the hubs. Yeah. yeah, and they hold them, and, you know, it's a mm -hmm. totally different thing. Yeah. So at the time that I was first there, that's, that's all it was. Mm -hmm. it I don't know when they changed the law and decided that all the games were. Which is like, yeah. Uh, but, and in the... In, there were, there were big games in the uh, 
lowball stud. But I had a friend who was a real high roller and he played a lot of the high stakes there. But he told me that you, know, you don't want to get in those games because those players are really good and everybody in there has a partner in the game. Everybody. Don't yeah. Get in there so there was like collusion, if not explicit cheating, like whatever. Yeah. 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 I was All just rampant. Yeah. So, yeah. So you were. You yeah. Yeah. So you, like you. When did you kind of circle back around to poker? Um, um, was it when you were? How long have you been back in New Orleans? I mean, have you been that back here since, since the late '90s? Okay. So I mean, did you start playing when you got back down here? Yeah, I played or no? a little bit. I started playing a little bit in the uh, late '80s out there. I started playing not so much in LA. I played in. In a little poker room in Tehachapi, California, and I went out to Las Vegas a few times. I played in the World Series, uh, a limit event there, okay. uh, sometime in the late 80s. Uh, played in the main event, main limit event there. Mm -hmm. I remember it was $1,500 buy-in. I played in one satellite, one satellite, got the seat in the main. And at that time, I, if I remember, there was something like you know, 580 players, and they announced that that was the most entries they ever had in a tournament at that time. Yeah, yeah. And it was really cool, because I looked around the room, and I saw all these people, and I said, I read your book, and I read your book, and I read your book, and I had the thrill of knocking out a little slim out of it. No way. Yeah. In Linda Limit, hold him? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Do you have any, uh, like, if you were to recommend, like, give any favorite poker books, like, either strategy or just stories? Because I'm also a really big reader of all that well, stuff. The one that, that I, uh, boy, this is going back, it's probably not in. in print anymore, but this is when I was a seven-card stud player, the one that I cut my teeth on, and I don't even know if it's any good anymore. It was Herbido Yardley, and a book on seven-card stud. He was a, a, a World War II code breaker. You familiar with Education him? of a poker player? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's one of the early great, yeah. great poker texts. Yeah. yeah. That really, you know, that got me started. That's why I became a pretty good poker player ah. when I was in my 20s, because I read that, and the other people had, didn't know that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's a classic. Um, yeah. And you know, you've you know you've taught acting, and you I noticed that you like published a, like a lecture series, like a video lecture series on like crafts. I have a DVD. A DVD. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also taught acting at uh, Tulane and Loyola and uh, Nova okay. here. Too. Right. Um, so, I mean, do you think your background as an, as an actor and in performance, do you think that's like helped you in your poker game in some way? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, not so much that, that I act when I'm playing, but I think it helps me in, in reading other people a little bit. Because you're not in good players, but with bad players, are terrible actors. 
flip side of that would be uh, poker players who are uh, who become actors as we were in the in our little skits so I mean how like what was that experience like for you to just like take folks who are like literally no acting experience thank you yeah, I don't, your bag's going in I don't want to oh yeah sure sorry thank y'all we're fine yeah. well it was a lark is that fun for you yeah I it mean, was a lark yeah yeah I think it was fun for uh, it was fun for all of us. Yeah, good, yeah. good. Yeah, I think we we're all very grateful that you uh, came on board. I <laughs> know Bill is. I'm not. I'm not sure when it's supposed to be out, but I think. Well, I, you know, I told Bill. You know, I've got Ethan working on it, who is really exceptionally good. But I told Bill, I said, you know, there's a. A saying in in film, you can get good, fast, cheap. It's a triangle. You get to pick any two. <laughs> yeah, good, fast, cheap. And he's working for free. Yeah. So you can't press him on time. Yeah, yeah. And he, you know, he's got daddy duties. He does. And it's Mardi Gras time. Yeah. But he said he'd get it out pretty quick yeah and he's never let me down yet and well the same thing is it, it's time sensitive because the tournament series is coming up yeah well so. he knows that yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of it I, the weekly is almost starting uh, okay yeah is there anything else you wanted to to mention before no, we wrap if, up if you want to anything you want to go yeah. further on okay. let me know Great. no this was this was okay. a real pleasure i'll walk over with you yeah okay. Yeah, I, this is this was really neat.